Calling all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar, Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Each week we'll recap and discuss a new episode. So come join us and our amazing guests from creators to cast to superfans to chat about all things Avatarverse. It's Fire Nation time. Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. What is up, everybody? Welcome to The Stack. I'm Alex. I am Pete. What and is up? On The Stack, we review a ton of comics that are coming out this do week. We, we were to review comics that we're thankful for. You know, oh, we do right. that every like week. This. It's yeah. not It's not a tied to any holiday or anything like that. But yeah. But it was, so we talk about, are we thankful or are we not thankful for them? And that's how we rate our comic books. Right, Pete? We unthankful. Yeah, which one is a turkey and which one felt us left us feeling stuffed? <laughs> eh? Which no? one do we want to stuff? Yeah, which one do we want to stuff in our comic book? Bat- Why don't we just get into the reviews? How about that? <laughs> Batman Offworld, number Batman! one. From- Batman Offworld, number one from DC Comics, written by Jason Aaron, art by Doug Mankey. The big headline for this one is this is Jason Aaron's official debut at DC Comics. He previously did two Vertigo comic series. He did a one-shot set in the world of Batman that only briefly involved Batman at one point. But now he's straddling both publishers. He's still going to be doing some work with Marvel. He's doing more work with DC, as well as a run on action comics that's coming up next year. But this is a very different story of Batman that, per the title, we catch up with him in a spaceship He's getting attacked by aliens that we've never really seen for the most part in the DC universe before, with a couple of exceptions as we go along the story. And there's a surprising revelation in terms of why he is out in space in the first place that really makes it unlike a lot of other Batman stories I've read before or what I expected from this book. Pete, what did you think about this one? Well, I'm going to go on a limb here. This Jason Aaron guy is a good writer. I don't know if you've heard of this guy before, but man, alive, can he write a story. Uh, This is awesome. This makes me very excited. Um, Batman just kind of like really challenging himself. You know what I mean? Like he got the shit kicked out of him. And he uses an opportunity to train and become a bigger badass than he already is. I fucking love it. I love it, man. Uh, This is just fun. It's Batman doing research in the most dark and kind of Batman-y way. Um, It's just cool. He he took kind of Batman away from Gotham and all the stuff and is just kind of... uh, it's a whole thing, and uh, yeah, I just love it. I think it's a great idea, fun, that we get to kind of uh, get away from all the continuity a little bit and just kind of have this uh, separate little pocket where Batman can kind of uh, be Batman. This is such a smart take from Jason Aaron because I always feel like Batman is this weird fit in these cosmic events. Of course, he's done it a million times by this point. But having him hang out in the corner, like stand on a rooftop and be like, Superman, you go there. Wonder Woman, you go there. I'm going to try not to get my bones broken. Always (laughs) is, is, is very strange to me. That's not 
where he lives and that's not where he works and that's not where his strength is. And here, Jason Aaron uses that disadvantage that Batman has to his advantage as a writer. That's what comes out here as, and this is the spoiler for the issue, but this is kind of the idea here is the same way that Batman has trained all over the world and mastered all sorts of disciplines. He realizes there's these big aliens. There's like dark sides and Mongols and all of these other things that are coming at Earth and are going to attack Gotham City. He has to prepare himself for that. He's so, got to get ready. He's got yeah. to start the training montage. I mm-hmm. want this whole series to be one giant training montage where Batman comes out of it bigger and badder than he's ever been, man. I'm I'm hyped. This is I'm like Rocky movie hyped mm-hmm. uh, about this. This is fun. Well, and also I'll mention Doug Mankey is just one of my favorite DC artists working. Yes. The alien creatures in here are so cool, going from menacing to you know, the classic sexy female uh, inmate who may She's try- an alien. She's an alien who may try to strike up a romance with Batman. You really think not. there's you think that already? Yeah, she doesn't I think seem so. to like him. I don't think he's gonna be into it, but I don't know. I think oh, we're going to get well, a little enemies to lovers thing going on here, potentially. We've also got a very fun robot character that's drawn in. But just all of these landscapes and everything, it's beautifully drawn, cleverly written. Great book. Definitely pick it up. Oh, yeah. It's it's definitely worth checking out for sure. Next up, one I was very curious to talk to you about, Pete. Daredevil Black Armor, number one, from Marvel, written by DJ Chichester, Mm -hmm. art by Netho Diaz. This is a throwback to a classic era of Daredevil that, to be frank, I had no idea existed. At the time, Daredevil was assumed dead. He went... (laughs) By the uh, name Jack Batlin, after Batlin Jack, his father, um, very clever. Electra is bald and dressed in all white. The kingpin is, I don't know, a mechanic or something like that. And there's a lot of things that are very different per the title. Daredevil also has this black armor, and he is much more extreme and much more intense in classic 90s style. Pete, what'd you think about this? Well, this really brought me back to when I was a kid and they were like, you like He-Man? And I was like, yeah. They were like, check out new battle armor, He-Man. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? And they were like, that's right. It's got You can hit it. And then it just like makes a mark. And then you, and you, I was like, oh, my God. That sounds so dumb, but I love it. And that's kind of what this is. It's battle armor Daredevil where he's a little bit t- darker. It's a little grittier. It feels like it's from the 90s. And you're like, oh, this is going to be dumb. But then when you start reading it, you're like, oh, man. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's, I think, uh, 100% the feeling they're going for. And just to be clear, it is something that is from the 90s that they're digging up again and telling a new adventure about. It feels like it's channeled right out of there. A lot of these throwback books, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. This is one that definitely does for me. And I don't usually like you. It definitely does. Yeah. I don't usually like extreme violent nineties stuff, but this is fun. Like it knows what it is. It's being a little winky about it. There's Mm -hmm. things a little spoiled here, but after daredevil confronts the kingpin at one point, he's like, man, why don't you just run for office instead? And Wilson Fisk is like, Hmm, mayor Fisk. I like the sound of that. So it's one of these things where it's like, yeah, we're setting it in the 90s. We're being winky about what we're writing yeah. right now. 
Daredevil is insanely extreme. Calling himself Jack Batlin is stupid. He looks like Matt Murdock walking around, even though he moved like 20 blocks away or something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know who he is. So it's a ludicrous premise, but it leads into that and has fun with that. And so subsequently, as a reader, I also had fun. Yes. Next up, a book that broke my brain, Pete. Mortal Terror, oh, number one. Wow. Dark Horse Comics, written by Christopher Golden and Tim Lebon, art by Peter Bergtig. This is... I don't even know uh, a monster flipped instead of gender flipped. It's a monster flipped world where humans are vampires and vampires are humans. And it's the characters from Dracula. But what would happen if the human characters were vampires kind of, and the vampire characters, including Count Dracula were human. And so in order to kill the vampires, they turn them alive and then they burst into flame this legitimately broke my brain while I was trying to read it, like trying to wrap my mind around this premise and what was happening here. I don't even know necessarily, like I could not separate it from, I kept wrestling with, is this the fault of the premise or is this just me having read decades of vampire lore and Dracula stories, including later on in the stack, a much more straightforward Dracula story where flipping it around. I just, I could not, I couldn't get past the premise, even though ultimately I thought the art was awesome. This is right in the these are folks who have worked with Mignola a bunch. So it's right in the like the Mignola verse type of realm of things. I thought there were some badass vampire action sequences. There's an attack on the train right yeah. at the top that's very cool to see the way that it plays out. It feels like an action movie when you're reading it. But just the basic premise, like it's my my brain crashed to a halt while I was reading it. Uh, were, did you have an easier time with this beat? No, I did not have an easier time. I, it's it's kind of crazy, but it also I want to start with the art and just say that I agree. It feels like a BPRD comic in all the best ways. It has this kind of old feel to it. And I think that meets the vampire tone really nicely. So it sucks you into this world really seamlessly. But the because we have things we expect. You're like, okay, this is what, how we think this vampires. But then when there's different things, it does. It feels like it's like an uh, this thing in your brain that it's like a thing you can't scratch. That's it kind of dr- drives you mad in a way. But I really love the art. And I just uh, thought, like, oh, if I just read this or if I read, like, a couple of them, I feel like this would go smoother. But because it was just, like, one and done, I was just a little bit, like, I, I, just getting used to it. It's not one and done. It's a series. So No, no, is, but I mean, yeah. I'm just saying if I read the whole series, I feel like yes. my brain wouldn't break because I'd be in this world more. Mm-hmm. But we're just reading this one issue. Do you know what it is? And this is so stupid, but I think it's just, like, Calling the vampires mortal and that therefore the humans are vampires or something is there's something about like that extra level of difficulty that even now talking about it, I can feel my chest tightening because it's making (laughs) me uncomfortable. But still, I think worth checking out despite all that. But just know that it's going to wrinkle your brain in very bad ways. 
Let's move on to another horror book, Hack Slash Back to School, number two Back from Image Comics by Zoe Thorogood. This is taking Cassie and Vlad and putting them in a high school prep school type situation where Cassie has found a bunch of other slasher killers. She is having the typical frenemy stuff. She is bonding with some friends and she is investigating a very weird digital slasher where the first book set up the premise, this digs into it in this issue. And I continue to absolutely love this series. Zoe Thurgood's art is gorgeous and uh, not to steal your term, Pete, but very tripped out, particularly in this issue as they travel inside of a video game. I love it. Yeah, I I, I love this too. Um, it just... The only little quibble I have is that Cassie and Vlad haven't been together in a really long time. The first issue, they're finally back together. So I was very excited about them being a team. And then in this issue, they're kind of separated. So I was a little like a little bummed about Mm -hmm. that. But uh, overall, I love this. I think it's a fun idea, Um, you know, and so I'm excited to have more in this world, and I think it's in great hands. I just, you know, no, I, I got just, a soft spot for Vlad and Cassie. So, well, I, I feel like based on this issue, that is still a very much a central part of the book because Cassie comes in on Vlad, and he's hanging out with one of the other girls in the school, and they're bonding, and she clearly feels bummed out about that. So, what I liked about this issue is you still have that tension of. They, as friends, love each other and want to be with each other, but Cassie is perhaps misinterpreting the situation. At the same time, she's getting to be with other people who are like her. We know they're going to end up together after this experience and go forward in their adventures. So how do they get there? What breaks in terms of the school? I'm very excited about the inherent tension that is below that premise, if in fact this is in continuity, which I think it is. Um, so I thought that was great. And I think I understand what you're saying, but the Cassie and Vlad of it all is still very much there for me, even if they're not together. Cool. All right. Catwoman number 59 from DC Comics, written by T.D. Howard, art by Stefano Raphael after the events of the Gotham War storyline. Catwoman fell in a weird Lazarus pit, took a bunch of lives, and now she's got nine lives and little kitty scratches on her back that every time she dies, one of those scratches goes black. So she is using the opportunity to take on the most dangerous mission she's had saved up that surely we're going to kill her. In this one, she is returning to a cat to a deadly woman, it ends up very deadly, as you might expect. What do you think about this new arc for Catwoman, Pete? Well, what's tough is this kind of, this was such a bat and cat kind of woven story in this whole battle for Gotham, and this is very separate from that. So I have a little separation anxiety because I'm rooting for the bat and cat relationship. So this is a little like, okay, don't think about that right now. And it's kind of hard to let go, but I'm willing to, but now I'm worried about Catwoman because she has got like a, you know, a power level bar on the top of her screen at all times there on her back. And uh, she's losing lives left and right. Like it's fucking Jumanji here. And she's allergic to pound cake. So I'm a little worried about uh, how quickly the lives are going. Wow. Uh, That That is quite the reference there, Pete. 
Thank you. Um, but uh, it's still very enjoyable. It's an amazing team on here. Um, you know, I uh, I like me some Catwoman. I, she's one of my favorite characters. So, um, yeah, great art, great story. I just have a lot of baggage around the events. I get it. I really like this premise a lot. I don't know if this issue fully played with it. It's the sort of thing that I, I need another issue to kind of get a sense of how it's going to play out because I love the idea that she has nine lives and she's going on these insanely dangerous missions. But one thing that I don't think they're dealing with here, and I wonder if they will deal with is the idea of if you know, you have nine lives, Catwoman's always at risk of dying. Is she taking more of a risk? Is she being sloppy? Because like she knows, she's taking you know? more of a risk right now. She's taking more of a risk with the missions, but it also feels like she's being a little sloppy in terms of this stuff. And I, I don't know. I don't know how much that's going to play into it necessarily. But again, as an idea, I'm worried I think about this her. Very smart. I'm worried about her too. She's probably going to die at the end of no! this, and no more Catwoman ever. Oh, They're done. Man. DC is done. Marvel, speaking of never done with stuff, Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars Battle World, number one from Marvel, written by Tom DeFalco, art by Pat O'Leaf. This is going back to an untold story from Secret Wars to the point that it literally takes place between paddles as Spider-Man goes to get a snack. He has his black suit on and we get an entirely new tale that I think like almost brings together the Jonathan Hickman secret wars kind of into the old secret wars with that level of characters. Uh, Pete, you love this one. So take it away. Yeah. I mean, I loved it not as a secret wars thing, but as a great Spider-Man book right now, Spider-Man is uh, not enjoyable for me. So this was a great little vacation of Spider-Man that I got to go on. Uh, I love him, the black suit sometimes. So this was also really cool. He was quippy and not angry. He was, uh, it was just a, it's a fun Spider-Man. I enjoyed it. The line where he's like, where in the Chris Kringle am I? Uh, that was hysterical. Uh, I love that. Um, I just had such a great time with this book. I love the idea of like, let's just have him fighting and quipping and not all the other crazy, insane bullshit that's going on with Spider-Man. So loved it and great art. It is interesting to throw it back to a time when emotional hook wasn't quite the thing, you know, like that was sort of my hill to get over with this book is it's really just spider being like, crikey, what's going on here? As I fall through yeah. these dimensions, crazy times, man. And there's no real emotional driver for him to go on this journey necessarily. But it's it is fun. fun. Yeah. It's fun to read. It's also Some similar to singers. the back, uh, not back in black, the black armor thing that we were talking about earlier. Since they're writing it now, they can be winky about his costume and be like, that's weird. What happened with that costume? Something yeah. that they didn't really know back then and they figured out as they went along. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for an old school thing set during Secret Wars, fun times. Looter Lodge, number one from Dark Horse Comics, written by Tyler Marseka, art by Mirko Kolak. This is about a husband who is looking for his wife who has disappeared. She said she was going on a business trip. She's not. She's actually staying in a place called Lunar Lodge. Uh, there's some mysteries there. Here's my big take on this book. Which wait, I, wait. Let me think. I, let me see if I can guess it. Yeah. 
Okay. Your big take is if someone says they're going on a business trip, they're lying. <laughs> Have them followed because nobody goes on business trips. Nobody has ever been on a business trip. Yep. That has never that happened. That means I'm fucking somebody. <laughs> 100% bad. Yeah. 100%. I guess it? By the way, my wife is on a business trip right now. Is that? <laughs> oh, no. That, is that I'm anything? so sorry, Alex. Is that anything? Uh, no, I think it's for run. a business. You had a good it's run. for a business. It's for business. You guys lasted a really long time, and I'm it's proud great. Of you. I'm not worried about it. No, my big take is that, like, I don't think I'm spoiling anything here because I led the title Looter Lodge, and I was like, oh, this is about werewolves, right? And the entire book, they're like, <laughs> what's going on? What are these creatures? What's happening to people? Why are they staying once a month on a full moon at the Looter Lodge? And I'm like, because they're werewolves. We know this. We know what's going on here. <laughs> and I I still like how the story spun out, and I like the investigation the guy goes on. I like where it ends up in this very weird place at the end. But again, we all know what werewolves is. It's almost the so opposite. So soon as somebody says to you Lunar Lodge, you're like, oh, you're a fucking werewolf. 100%. It's almost <laughs> the opposite problem from Mortal Terror, where it's overthinking the vampire premise. This is maybe underthinking the werewolf premise, where it's like, what are these? And it's like, we know. Just get to it. Like, have a werewolf on the first issue. It's okay. It reminds me a little bit, what's that? It, I don't think it was called Blood Pact, but the comic book we just read a little, couple of weeks back by Simon Kondransky, where the dude is a vampire. Mm-hmm. And they actually get to it before the end of the book. They're like They play coy for two-thirds at the end. He's like, I'm a fucking vampire. And he starts ripping people to shreds. That's what I want to see out of a book. Like, don't take until issue six or whatever and be well, like, I do and like, it was werewolves. I do like the idea, if you can get past the title and not just uh, or overanalyze the title, uh, I think that this the way it starts with this, like, close up of like somebody's eye bleeding dark you know you know mm-hmm. stuff and then kind of building back up to her story i think is something that's kind of like you grab somebody's attention and then you kind of build up to the story we've seen that time and time again sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't i felt like this did a good job of kind of using it in a way that's like hey you've seen this before but i think we understand what's going on here in a way that's like all right we you know uh, so yeah, I wasn't as upset about it as you were. I furious. was like, oh, absolutely I furious. I know I'm what's livid. happening. I understand this execution of an idea. I've seen this before, but you know, I'm uh, you know, I'll, I want to see the Lunar Lodge. So let's go. <laughs> yes, show me the Lunar Lodge. Yeah, I also yeah. like that the main character looks like Donny Cates. That was pretty nice as well. <laughs> <laughs> just a coincidence, but just it, a coincidence. Just I'm a coincidence, sure. but the entire time I was like, "That's Donny Cates. That's weird." It's like when I saw Jordan D. White in comics, mm-hmm. and it was driving me crazy. Yeah, there you go. The last kids on Earth and their superhero alter egos are back in the latest installment of the graphic novel spinoff series, The Last Comics on Earth. Too many villains. Jack, June, Quint, and Dirk face their biggest challenge yet creating the sequel to their hit graphic novel in a mad dash, puzzle-filled race across Apocalyptia to stop the biggest evil plan in history. Hey, you know what the creators of Last Comics on Earth's evil plan is? Make me and my kids love these books. 
Seriously, my younger kid is a huge fan of both the Last Kid series and the Last Comic series. It's true. And now I'm hooked too. The whole team has created a delightful cast of characters with some fantastic kid-friendly art throughout that will appeal to readers of all ages. Buy your copy of The Last Comics on Earth in stores today. You can also visit lastkidsonearth.com to learn more. Uh, Void Rivals, number six, from Image Comics, written by Robert Kirkman, art by Lorenzo DiFelici. I'm about to sneeze, so give me a second. <laughs> you can just, you know, hit a mute. No, absolutely week. not. People, uh, a lot of, we get a lot of emails of people asking me to sneeze on the podcast, so. Because you always look like you're just about to sneeze. That's why they're like, please just sneeze. <laughs> just, <laughs> oh my God, don't. Anyways, I love this. Void Rivals is awesome. I love the art style. It's so cool. There's so much action. I love the story. I love this team. I think this is just, it's got such a cool look and feel to it that I get excited when I get to spend more time in this world. This is set in the Energon universe, which connects to Transformers and G.I. Joe pretty soon. That's coming out pretty soon, and we're going to expand there. But this is following two different, ostensibly two different species who probably are actually the same species. Two folks from each one of those species who are constantly at war have joined together and have been forced to team up. We're getting some big revelations about how their world works in this issue that I thought were very cool and fun. Classic Kirkman-esque twicks, twists. The only thing that this isn't frustrating me so much as maybe tainting the experience a little bit is I keep waiting for big Transformers things in every issue. And a lot of the Listen, times that you got to well, relax your taint when you're reading these. Okay. <laughs> no, you can't taint, tense your I gotta taint. I got to tight no, taint. No, the, stop waiting for the big. They're not going to do that. There's a revelation at the end of the issue where somebody's like, get me this thing. And I looked it up and I was like, ooh, what Transformers thing is that? And it wasn't a Transformers thing. And I was like, what? What is happening here? Stop putting your own agenda onto a comic book. I thought there's a a sequence where they cross over the planet. And I thought, like, they keep pulling back on the planet. I was going to be like, oh, shit, they're on Cybertron. They're not? Stop know. forcing it, man. Let just no. it and enjoy it for what Give it is. Give me the Transformers. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like fucking super villain when you do that. <laughs> Get me the Transformers. <laughs> anyway, yes, the art is very good in this book. I do generally enjoy it. Uh, the story the is good. Is great. There's a lot of stuff that happens here. Robert Kirkman occasionally will reach books, re- release books where he's like. One thing happened this issue. This is not one of those issues. So good stuff. Uh, give me the Transformers. Green Lantern World Ju- War Journal number three from DC Comics, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Montos. Things are heating up incredibly in this issue as John Stewart is fighting a new enemy called the Radiant Dead, who's basically like. I don't know, a mix between Star Sapphires and the Black Lanterns, kind of. But they have a zombie virus that has invaded us from another universe. Jon Stewart is the only person that could stop him, but all he wants to do is protect his mom. There is such a depth of emotion in this book. Huge action, huge stakes. This is a classic Philip Kennedy Johnson book. And once again, he's knocking out of the park. Plus, Montos's art, particularly when it comes to this radiant dead infection, is so spooky and terrifying and creepy. Great stuff. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, and also, like, I'm so glad that they, you know, because sometimes when big events happen and there's like people in the crowd or whatever, they sometimes move on, you know, where it was like your family was in the crowd, but then there's like some big event and they forget about. I was so glad that like they picked right up with that, ran with it. I mean, it's it's um, it's very touching, uh, heartbreaking stuff. And then, you know, they start kind of talking about the next thing. And this whole time I'm like, Man, I'm worried John's going to – not only is he going to lose his mom, but then he's going to lose his arm. Mm-hmm. Like there's a high stakes going on in this. Phil, Philip County Johnson's writing the crap out of this. It's This is uh, – I don't like Green Lantern, but I'm I'm enjoying this book. The things uh, – you just mentioned these things, but I just wanted to give them a shout as well. I think in terms of crafting this story, giving the hero a real – emotional reason to refuse the call, not just because like, I don't want to be a hero, but the fact that his mom has Alzheimer's, I assume, or dementia and is slowly failing and he just wants to be with her. That's the reason he doesn't want to save the world anymore is such a deeply ingrained emotional reason to give him uh, to eventually presumably want to fight to save her, to save everyone. But right now to be scared to leave her is such an interesting mode for a hero. I'm really fascinated reading this. This is a great character study as well as a big action book at the same time. The sensational She-Hulk number two from Marvel written by Rainbow Rowell and Bobby Wilson art by Andre Genelet and David Cutler. And the front story, the new Hulk the new version of Hulk from Philip Kennedy Johnson's book that we're going to talk about later shows up in New York to confront She-Hulk. Uh, the other kind of She-Hulk is there at the same time. And the backup story, we get to see Wyatt Wingfoot again, mixing it up with She-Hulk. I just have a blast reading this book every issue. Hells yeah. This uh, She-Hulk right now has been such a great book for a long time. The team on it is just uh, really knocking out of the park. Um, we don't get any news on She-Hulk's relationship that we're pulling for, mm-hmm. but I love all the Hulk fighting that we get. This, to me, was just like such a classic kind of like Hulk thing of like, he's upset about something. She's like, yo, bro, it's not me. Leave me alone. He's like, don't tell me my business and then they get into it and then they kind of get the reveal of what's really going on and it's Hulk still picks a fight because like as he's storming away the other She-Hulk's like I'm Hulk and that just it's like oh dude don't say that now the Hulk's coming back and he's gonna whoop on you I I just had such a great time with this This it is a very funny counterpoint to the book that we're gonna be talking about later that is so deathly serious to have Hulk be stupid and just to have some comedy around him is great um Yeah, this is also the perfect book for Thanksgiving week. Sometimes cousins show up and you're like, oh, my God, this guy. I I got to deal with this guy. Here we go. All right. Uh, But great stuff. And love the backup story. Wyatt Wingfoot just constantly flirting with She-Hulk the entire time in the middle of a million different things that are going on. Very fun. I miss that relationship from back in the day. So it was a delight to see it again. It was a great package. The Alternates, number three from Dark Horse Comics, written by Patton Oswalt, Jordan Bloom, and Tim Seeley, art by Christopher Mitten. We have been following this team who 
was a B squad. I don't even know. Like they're not exactly like they're sort of a doom patrol meets teen Titans kind of thing. During a big event, they were sent to an alternate dimension to beat part. Like basically they would have been off at a mini series that tied into the big event. And years later they came back. Things were so great for them in that dimension. They're essentially addicted to it. And that dimension is now coming back into their dimension. We get some big revelations and twists in this issue. The biggest one, I didn't realize that Lobster Louie was a bunch of different lobsters. I thought he was just a big lobster. And now we know. Game changed. Yeah, it's a classic thing of like a bunch of kids in a trench coat. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know. Yeah. He could sneak into an R-rated movie for crawfish. Oh boy, uh, lobster! Yeah, I, oh boy, yeah, yeah. This just to me really stuck the landing. Like I love the last panel; they did such a great job of writing this and setting this up. It's an amazing uh, who's who team you got here between the mitten and then the comedy stylings of uh, Patton and Tim Seeley. And the Blum. So, yeah, I, I just think this is just great. The The characters are really different and unique and very cool. There's a lot of great action, good kind of back and forth. I think this is just a solid comic. I said this with the last issue, but this world of minor threats has very quickly become a favorite in comics. It's very different from the Black Hammer universe, but it feels yep. similar in terms of actually finding a new fresh take on superheroes here it's superheroes through mental health you know in in the first series it was a lot about what is it like to feel like a second stringer you know what is it like to feel like an also round what does that mean for you which a lot of us feel like all the time here is the very real ptsd dealing with addiction dealing with drug use uh but again just what is it like to be not the world's greatest super team, but the other guys, you know? Yeah. And it's very relatable. I, Shout I really out to like the other guys. Shout out to the other guys. Aim Uncanny... for the bushes. What? Aim for the bushes. What does that mean? It's a quote from the other guys. Uh, okay. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Oh, that was not a quote from the other guys. That was a quote from TLC. Well, it, that was also but they say the, other, the other guys. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Uncanny Spider... You've clearly watched that movie too much. Uncanny Spider-Man number four from Marvel, written by Cy Spurrier, art by Lee Garbett. Nightcrawler is our titular Spider-Man here. He is wrestling with a lot of stuff in classic Spider-Man slash Nightcrawler fashion. He is dating Silver Sable. They clearly have feelings for each other. Silver Sable has to track him down at the same time. Also, we got regular Spider-Man in this issue, and Orcus is closing in on all of them at the same time. This book is great. I think we say this every issue, but whatever we think is lacking in the main Spider-Man title is right here. You've got the romance. You've got the adventure. You've got the quips. You've got the real emotion. There's also this mystery in terms of this Bamf, which is like a little nightcrawler who's haunting nightcrawler who keeps needling him and being like, you know what I am. You know, you just got to say it, which is driving me insane in exactly the way that it should be driving me insane while I'm reading this. This is 
one of my absolute favorite books that Marvel is putting out on a monthly basis. Wow, that's great. I'm glad you're having so much a good time. I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed the date date scene was nice. The you know, Mystique with the rocket launcher was a little too crazy. I did appreciate the love for the pizza guy. Much respect for that and great art. I wait, there was one other thing that I was going to say I love. Um I do love all of that stuff. Oh, I also Love the design of the villains. I know they started to bleed through into some of the other X-Men books, but I think they were introduced here. This new vulture who has the techno-organic virus sort of coming yeah. off of him. He's got feral. He's yeah, got but a you just like it because it reminds you of your favorite character there. No. Bit. Well, kind of just in terms of I always found – the storyline of Warlock, the Magus, kind of terrifying. Like the idea of he could touch you once and take you over the techno-organic virus. Very scary to me. Seeing these characters who have the techno-organic virus that's supposed to be controlled, it is 100% going to go out of control very soon. I find that very scary. That is something that is ingrained from my childhood until now in terms of this. And I, I love it. Like, I love the visual of it, and I love the terror of it as well. So, good villains. There you go. Great book. I'm glad we 100% both agree on this point. Captera, Universal Truths, number four, from Image Comics, written by Chip Sadarsky, art by Kagan McLeod. This is not a one-off issue, but we are flashing back to find out what happened with the big villain Skullthor, who is basically He-Man meets Skeletor. He had left Captara and been sent to our Earth, the regular Earth. And here we see what has happened to him, bringing him up pretty much to the current time in the book. This is maybe my favorite issue of this series so far. It is just this great story of this insane hulking villain who finds redemption through working at a diner and the love of a good woman. It's beautiful. It's creative. It made me laugh out loud multiple times with ridiculous, dirty jokes of the classic Chip Sadarsky tradition. This is great. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was I wrote here, aw, Skullthor has love. I mean, that's very sweet. This is a fun issue. Great art. Yeah, there's a lot of fun little clip quips. Yeah, yeah, I think this is a fun kind of silly winky comic in all the right ways. You didn't find it romantic, Pete? You're the romance guy. I did. I did think it was very romantic. Period. Period. <laughs> right. Great. I really liked the relationship here. I thought I, it was really good. I liked the visuals as well. I'll just give a shout out to Kagan McCloud's uh, characters, which we've said before, feel like a little bit inflected by Mad Magazine, kind of, but... Yeah. Just visuals the He-Man like He-Man haircut was hysterical look. The He-Man haircut, the like him trying to wear T-shirts, but them never fitting. Very fun. The whole running joke about having a, a second smaller vibrating weird penis. Very funny as well. You hated that. Yeah, you did. You, that was your big problem, right? No, it wasn't my big problem. I wasn't. I just yeah. it was like you know. Just imagine Pete has three penises, so he's prejudiced <laughs> against people who have two penises, right, Pete? Nope. <laughs> oh, okay. Not Deny it all you want, but you got to live your truth, man. Anyway, great book. Jake Eric, The Flash, number two from DC Comics, written by Jeremy Adams, art by Diego Alortuga Tugui. 
I don't know. Sorry, buddy. Anyway, in this issue, we are continuing to follow the adventures of Judy Garrick, who is the newly returned daughter of Jay Garrick, who was lost in time before this. She's a super speeder called the Boom. And along with her, there are a bunch of other villains who are coming back at the same time. I was surprised how emotional the first issue was. I don't think this quite hit those heights, but at the same time, I really like this. Like, this is not a series that I ever would have thought was necessary, but now that it exists, I think the mystery is intriguing. I like the characters. I like the tension of having a daughter who is a teenager who suddenly comes back and finds both of her parents old, and the parents being like, we're old. What do we do about this now? It's a really intriguing sci-fi proposition. I think that what it is, is you know what it's like to have a daughter who goes to the mall and then you worry about them. I think that's why you you like this book. Um, Yeah. I use my super speed to check her out. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I don't have kids, so I didn't find this as cool. Um, I love the art very much. There's a great style to it. It's a cool kind of young look, which I really appreciate. I love the team of characters in this. You know, Bear is cool. So is Stargirl. I like the look of that. And then you get the flashes. And uh, yeah, so I I think there's a lot of good things going for it. But overall, uh, you know. It's interesting that it's called Jay Garrick the Flash because it's much more the Garricks or something like that. But I get it. Immortal X-Men number 17 from Marvel. Oh, boy. Uh Uh-oh. I don't know what direction this is going to go in, but written by Kira Gillen, art by Juan Jose Rip. As usual with this title, we're getting two storylines. One storyline is dealing with the big revelation of the last issue that the 250,000 lost mutants are actually in the white hot room which is something that ties into the Gene Gray series that Louise Simonson has been writing. Gene Gray is trying to get resurrected, but also not quite ready to be resurrected. So that's kind of where she's at. Meanwhile, everybody else is trapped with her. We have a mother righteous seems to actually be in there and she's kind of the big villain that's manipulating things potentially. But at the same time in the, the regular Marvel universe, Charles Xavier has realized picking up on the sins of Sinister that that he is potentially still infected with Sinister and has decided, trigger warning here, to potentially kill himself to get rid of Sinister entirely. However, this part of Sinister ties into an event from, I think, decades ago in X-Men continuity, which is wild that they're bringing that back. But ultimately, this version of Sinister reveals a lot of different truths to Xavier and ultimately sets him out on a new mission. I thought this was awesome. I love this book. I love Juan Jose Rip's art. However, I think it was weirdly smooth and a little maybe over-inked or maybe over-colored, maybe like digitally, overly digitally colored in this issue. Usually has like more of a... I don't know, crusty style is, I guess, what I'd call it. Um, So a little bit too smooth here, but at the same time, some badass stuff, really interesting moves with Xavier. The apocalypse fight was killer as well. 
I love everything that's going on here, and I love where they end up because there's so much danger for absolutely everybody. Pete, I can see from how you're nodding and rubbing your temples in a headachey kind of way that you agree. So go over to you. All right. First off, I disagree with everything that you said. Secondly, no, the only thing I do agree with is Rip's art is amazing. I also love uh, Gillen as a writer. Uh, but this issue is complete garbage. This is just such a waste of space. First off, we have walking bearded Charles Xavier who's just wasting panels, walking around looking at shit. Who's having fun here? Then we get a boss battle, which is cool. But then we have Slave Leia, Jean Grey, who has a premonition. And then we got walking bearded Charles doing some more walking. And then he's talking with Force Ghost Sinister, who sits down for having the most depressing chat about suicide and killing yourself. And uh, then we get Slave Leia walking around with super balloons through the desert. Like, what the fuck was this? Like, I, 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 I don't, I don't know what's happening. I don't like what's happening. I don't recognize any of the characters in what's happening. And uh, I don't know, maybe I need to walk away from X-Men for a while or something and figure out maybe that I don't have the continuity or the education to read these things in a way that's most to be enjoyable because I, I can't get behind anything that's happening in the X-Men world. And it used to really be something that I could tap into. I will say to the point that you're making, this is immortal X-Men is the most deep divey X-Men title that you could read right now. Because like I was saying, the stuff that happens in the white hot room doesn't make any sense if you don't know what the White Hot Room is, first of all, but also if you haven't been reading the Gene Gray series. Second of all, the Charles Xavier stuff doesn't make any sense if you haven't been reading Sins of Sinister or that crossover. And it also you doesn't You don't think make... Charles Xavier looks like a douchebag right now with his fucking beard and his He's fucking gonna walking? It. He's gonna using his it. fucking legs just, like an I'm asshole. I'm proud of him, man. You know, like it's easy for you. You always proud of him. He's been done nothing but do douche moves. I am his proud of life. him for growing a beard. Oh, that's Jesus. what I'm saying. It's Obviously. a cool look for men who have, you know, male pattern baldness. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I I really like the character study of this issue because I have read all, I actually to defend what you're saying, I understand what you're saying here. Like I don't agree with the overall X-Men hate because I love this era, but I understand, particularly with the Kieran Gillen stuff, it's a deep dive. This is not something that you should read and be like, oh, let me pick up Immortal X-Men number 17. Let me see what's going <laughs> yeah, on. Because you need to have read 5,000 other things to have like even the foggiest idea of what's happening here. But as somebody who does... I really like this. I really like just like taking the time to have a character you don't study. Think Slave Leia Jean Grey is fucked up. Like here, here's why I like it. Okay, what I like is you have, and I've said this who's before. Who's the editor who's like, oh no, no, I love this. You get Jordan D. White. Jordan D. White, who you like as a person. Classic. Uh, Classic. The, of course, it's Jordan D. White. 
He read us the X-Men line, man. The, of course uh, it is. Hold on. We got to move this on with this. We should move on for this a second because we're just going to yell back life. and forth. But the thing that I like about it is like taking the time to bring Charles Xavier to his absolute lowest point and having Mr. Sinister of all people being the person that sends him on the upswing to ultimately become a hero again and retake what he needs to do to fight back with his fellow X-Men, I think is a really interesting place to put him. And I think taking the time to do that was interesting. In terms of Jean Grey, a character that, to be frank, I don't really care about too much. Like, it is inevitable that she is going to be resurrected. I don't know much about her character, necessarily. I've really... Really like the Louise Simonson series. I thought that was very, very good. So definitely check that out as again. As Someone inter- pitches you Slave Leia Jean Grey, and you're like, greenlit. Go. No, no. Notes. Because what I liked about this is the revelation that Mother Righteous, yes, she is the villain here because she's been playing both sides. What she is going to do with June Grey, I don't know. But Dream Grey, similar to Charles Xavier, this is the place that X-Men should be in. Is like they are always on their back legs. They are always losing. How do they get out of this? I don't know. But the second they fight back, it makes the situation worse for them. That's always where I want to see them, is always fighting no matter what. And right now, Jean Grey is losing. She is lost. She doesn't know who she is. How will she get out of this? I think she will, and I'm excited to see that happen. Darkling number one. From Archie Comics, written by Sarkoon, art by Carola Borelli. We had Sarkoon on the show. Sadly, we did not talk to her about Darkling, right, Pete? Yeah! <laughs> no, we talked to her about Darkling, and it was yeah. great, lovely conversation, Took really fun. This is a reinvention of a classic Archie comic superhero character. Here, it's set in college. She is investigating weird supernatural mysteries, and she has a cape that creates portals, about other things. The old portal cape. The old portal cape. I had a blast reading this book. This is... 100% of my wheelhouse. I love supernatural college with supernatural mysteries with, it seems like a queer main character who has kind of like a journalist romantic interest. Super fun. Take this, put it on Netflix. I will watch a million episodes or at least yeah. three seasons until they cancel it. What's great is not only uh, did we talk to this writer about the fact that she went to haunted school uh, haunted college. Uh, so she's done the proper research to do a book like this. But I, I was really impressed with how this re- Archie Comics is doing such a great job of like doing all the supernatural stuff. And this really feels just like an extension of the Sabrina Riverdale kind mm-hmm. of tie-ins that they've been doing. It, they've been really killing it with that. And this is just another perfect example of that. This is a great first issue. You can really feel the character's voice in here in such a cool way. I I, I feel like this was such a uh, uh, no-brainer, uh, number one. This is such a cool comic uh, I agree with you. I hope they it becomes a TV show or a hit something. Well, so this gets into my one issue, which, mind you, I love the folks at Archie, and I think they're doing a killer job, like you said. I want more. I'm getting a little frustrated with all these number ones that keep coming out that never they're get continued. Just sending out feelers. They're sending out feelers. They're sending out feelers. Like, Give you me guys more. Like this? Do you, hey, you guys that? like this? Uh, you like this? I'm completely. And we have to on this. say yes. We do. 
I know, but like, I want a number two, two issue. I want to read more issues of Darkling. So please, we'll everybody buy 20 pick copies up. of number one, and then we'll get that. No problem. On it, buddy. All right, great. Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong, number two from DC Comics, written by Brian Bucciolato, art by Christian Deuce. The Booch! In the first issue, we got a surprisingly emotional story of Superman wanting to ask Lois Lane to bury him. And not a lot of whole lot of uh, giant monster fights. This issue pays off on the premise as Superman punches Godzilla, among other things. The MonsterVerse has invaded the DC Universe. And of course, the teams are splitting up to take them down. You seem pretty psyched about this peak, so take it away. Yes, this was awesome. This was just a huge, giant monster fight. I feel like as a kid, I w- if I had a Godzilla toy and a Superman toy, this is the comic I would want. Uh, I just feel like uh, this is so cool and so well done. I also love the tension of a Godzilla versus Superman. And because of what happened in the last issue, like where I'm a little worried about how things end up. But, but until then, I was having such a great time and just... It was such a cool uh, artistic kind of battle and and where they uh, had the panels and designed it. So I was just super impressed. You know what you're getting and man, do they deliver. This does not exactly feel like a Brian Hitch. Like that's the person that I'd potentially want on this. But I think Christian Deuce is doing a great job with, like you're saying, the the Deuce is killing it, bro. The The Deuce. Deuce Deuce. Yeah. Deuce Bigelow. Classic. The... Uh, yes, the art is great. The monster fights are great. This is a little bit of a step down for the first issue, which oh, I was. Come on. No, because I was like super emotionally involved. But to your point, given that first issue and given what happens in the second issue, I worry about Superman, which is a yeah. hard thing to do. Yeah. This has a very classic, like, let's split the team up into three locations for three missions type structure. A little bit too much of the issue is taken up with one monster fight, what I would like to see multiple monster fights, potentially. It's a great monster fight, though. It is a good monster fight, I guess. Uh, But at the same time, um, yeah, uh, generally enjoying this. Uh, This is a good book. Captain Marvel, number two from Marvel, written by Alyssa Wong, art by Jen Basildua. Of course, the Marvels is tanking at the box office, so I hated this book. Oh, no. No, I'm kidding. I like the Marvels, and I love this book, actually. Hey, what a I, turn of events. I know. What a twist. So in the first issue, a new character, a thief who has mild, like, very minor powers. I think she has, like, passing through solid matter powers or something like that. Super a little, little unclear at this point. But she has gotten the Nega bands, gotten bonded with Captain Marvel. So we got a classic set up here for Captain Marvel. I don't think this has ever happened with Carol Danvers, though, necessarily, where they're sharing one body and they got to switch back and forth by clanging together the naked bands. This issue, they're trying to figure out how it works. Love it. This is great. Seeing Carol Danvers in this situation, seeing this new character try to wrestle with college at the same time as she's got to be a superhero is great. I had so much fun reading this issue. Um, just an absolute blast. And there's some uber creepy visuals with the villain from Jan Basildua. Yeah. This is even better than the first issue, I think. Wow. Yeah, I love the first issue. I definitely love this. Uh, I also thought the asking out on a coffee day was adorbs. Mm-hmm. Love the action. Great art. 
I really enjoyed what's uh, what's happening in this book and what they're setting up and the kind of conflict. I'm really looking forward to the next ish. This is great. I assume they won't keep this continuity, this status quo past the first arc, but if they wanted to long term have Captain Marvel sharing a body with somebody, I'm good with it. I'm gonna, I'm having a blast. Justice Society of America number seven from DC Comics, written by Jeff Johns, art by Marco Santucci. Bunch of stuff going on in this issue, but the main thing is that part of the JSA is tracking down Solomon Grundy in Slaughter Swamp. There's a bunch of other things going on here as they try to deal with all the lost children returning. Got some threats burgeoning in the background. Um, This, uh, to borrow a term from our co-host Justin, who is not here, this issue felt a little bit like the news for me. Where it's like, what's going on with different parts of the Justice League? Let's check in with them. And I love... Jeff John's writing always. He has a good handle on this team. Marco said Tucci's art is great, but I'm not quite sure what the story of this book is right now. And it's coming out so sporadically. It's a little hard to hang on to. Uh, well, to quote our uh, good uh, friend, Justin, uh, uh, when he says, I'm a douchebag and I wear shirts too small. Uh, mm. No, I, I, this feels like a, JSA comic where it's like you're wondering they're telling you about what everybody's doing you, you know you get a little action a little story a little kind of okay next uh, so I felt like they kept it going in a way and I feel like Jeff Johns knows how to write and keep things going so like you know sometimes if you got a middling issue or you got some stuff to do it's like right, well, let's yeah, let's just hop over to the next book. yeah I guess so this book just doesn't come out frequently enough for that is the frustration that I'm having because okay. the first arc was such a clear concept of Huntress gets attacked by a time-traveling villain called Perdagaton, has to travel back in time to the JSA. Super clear, yeah. Well, but like super clear comic book premise. (laughs) There's the key. Yeah, she has to travel back in time to save the Justice Society of America after her future is destroyed. So like, I get that. Like, it's sort of a Terminator type thing. Cool. I don't know what the mission of this book is now. I don't know why it exists other than like, oof, we've got all these children and also some other things are going on. What's going to happen here? I really like the scene with Dr. Fate's lost protege and the new Dr. Fate. That was some interesting character work there. But I just don't know how it ties into the overall thing. So we'll see. The Amazing Spider-Man number 38 from Marvel, written by Zeb Wells, art by Ed McGuinness. This is bringing together everybody's favorite character, Wreck Rap, who is a giant demon who <laughs> looks like Spider-Man. He has been swallowed by another demon called Repo, who just kind of likes to kill people on the side, but also has swallowed Peter Parker and taken him into his stomach with Wreck Rap and a bunch of villains who are kind of based on the Sinister Six. Over the course of the issue, they have to crawl out of this creature's stomach and then save Robbie Robertson's son. Uh, Pete, what's going on? Yeah, so Rick Rap fun. Um, really, the the winner here is Ed McGinnis's art's unbelievable, so worth it for the art alone. You Ooh, know. is it? People should pick up this issue of Amazing Spider-Man for the art. Is that what you're saying, Pete? Well, what I'm saying is that if I'm going to see Rec Rap, 
<laughs> I want I'd make my sister draw it because it's awesome looking. If you're gonna force Rick Rap into my yeah, eyeballs, that's how they're doing. They're like, listen. We're bringing back right rap and everyone's like boo, but they're like Ed McMinnis is doing the art. They're like, all right, I'll buy it. I'll fucking buy it because I fucking love Ed McGinnis. Uh, I I agree with you on that. I I think I think we're on the same page with being very frustrated. I like seeing rec rap every once in a while to pop up and be like, oh yeah, that fucking guy, and that's it. The, I don't want any more out of him. I don't want you know what I mean. The dark web storyline was. Great. Like, that was very hilarious. It was over the top. I never needed to see those characters again. This issue, at least, versus the last issue where I was like, what is happening here? What is going on with all these storylines? This is very focused on (laughs) Peter Parker and Rep Rap trying to crawl out of this character repo. Time moves differently, so it takes them several weeks to crawl out of him while one minute is passing in the real world. Very focused issue, one story for the most part. And I was like, I appreciate this. Thank you for doing this. This is at least a little bit more fun. We're not getting into whatever is going on with Mary Jane and Paul. We're not getting into all the Norman Osborn stuff for the fact that you killed Miss Marvel for no particular reason or anything else. Keep it focused on this goofy, fun story. I generally had a good time here. Like you're saying, Ed McGinnis drew a bunch of gross, funny visuals in the repo stomach. Um, Here's my problem with this. My problem with this, and this is a spoiler, but the reveal is that Zeb Wells has been seeding the character repo over the course of, I don't know, 40, 50 issues or so with... Lincoln, you miss it appearances. This to me feels very like the villain who I do not remember the name of other than he was mystical and he had a beard who killed Miss Marvel, who again was a Zeb Wells thing. was like, remember this guy? Now he's back. And I was like, I do not remember this guy. <laughs> and it's the same thing here with Repo. It's like, we've been seeding this for so long. He was here, and now he was here, and now he's Repo. And I was like, I don't remember that. That was not impactful for me as a reader. You brought this back as a plot line, and it doesn't matter to me at all. There is no emotional impact. I'm sure it's very exciting for you that you brought it back, but you got to make me care about this character in the first place. I'm going to bring up a comparison point. This is something that like Chris Claremont used to all the time in the X-Men titles be like, here's the thing that's happening. Well, see in 20 issues. And the one that really struck me is I remember there was a space whale that crashed down on earth and I think it was Havoc and Lorna Dane Polaris were like dry. They were like, ah, we're taking a break for the X-Men. They're driving in the car. They're like, whoa, space well. And I remember reading that. I'd be like, what's up with that space well? That's pretty weird. And then it legitimately was not until 40 issues later that they revealed that that space well was full of brood and it took all for the X-Men and it lasted for like three or four issues. And Wolverine was infected with a brood and turned into this brood Wolverine. And it was very intense. Love that stuff. That was great. Like dropping that thing there and being like, huh? 
the reason it worked is it paid off emotionally with the characters later on in a way where it was like, and now here's a major storyline. Repo is not like that because like, here's a background character who two things happened to, and now he's a demon. I don't care about that guy at all. Like, and this isn't hooked on anything. And that's frustrating to me. So it's continuity for the sake of continuity that's coming back. And it doesn't feel winky. It doesn't feel smart because I don't know what you're talking about. All right, Kill Your Darlings, number three. Oh, my God. Wow, you are moving on. We didn't even talk about the gang war stuff at the end. At the end, we had a kick over to the gang war storyline, which is going to stretch to Amazing Spider-Man 44. And we have a tease of a mystery villain who's manipulating things in the background. Pete, who do you think it is? Who killed, potentially, killed Count Afari and Silvermane? I don't care. The Rose, that's my guess. Let's move on to Kill Your Darlings, number three from Image Comics, written by Ethan S. Parker and Griffin Sheridan, art by Robert Quinn. We've been following this young girl who imagined a mystical playland, absolutely delightful, that was taken over by a horrible being who I think killed her parents. We flash forward to her in her adult years in the last issue, and now she's going back to the mystical land. Things don't go well. What'd you think, Pete? This continues to be great. I love the little elephant guy. This is cool. Like artistically, the portal through the worlds, the way they kind of did it with the different colors and stuff was really awesome. Art is super tight bananas. Worth it for the art alone. It's just, uh, yeah, I I love the title. I love the book. I I love the characters. This uh, this is continues to be such a fun thing in my stack. Yeah, I really like the world building that goes on this issue. To your point, I think it's a double page spread where they're crossing from one world yeah. to the other and going upside down through it. Yeah. Really cool layouts from Robert Quinn on that double page spread. Very nice. And I love the move. I won't spoil it, but I love the move at the end here that sets up a clear antagonist for our main character, something Don't that we haven't it. quite had in the series so far. That Stop spoiling it. Well, that I think is so smart, so well done, so emotionally done. Um, I am fully invested in this title, and I can't wait to read more. Nightwing 108 from DC Comics, written by Tom Taylor and Michael W. Conrad, art by Stephen Byrne and Serg Akuna. Nightwing's a pirate now, and he's going to pirate land, and he's fighting pirate battles. He also cannot button his shirt to save his life. What do you think about this one, Pete? Yeah, this is great. Uh, this is so much fun, so much action. Uh, I hated the last panel for good reason. Um, and uh, yeah, just amazing art. This amazing stories continues to be such a great comic. I mean, Nightwing has been such a underrated DC comic for so long. Uh, Tom Taylor is an amazing writer. So is Michael Conrad. I just wanted to give a shout out to Stephen Burns art in this issue. Yes. Bruno Redondo is a hard act to follow, but Stephen Byrne picks right up on it. There's such great visuals in here throughout all of the stuff with nightwing is very fun. The action is very kinetic throughout. Um, and just really fun visuals as well with the pirate city that they come on. This uh, title is a blast. This is, this is great. Come upon. Come, Come upon. upon. And there is some really good romantic tension in this issue as well. Like, I'm all in on the Dick Grayson, Barbara Gordon relationship, but there's some good swerves in here with another character that I thought 
really nice continuity. We got our ships, dude. Don't try to swerve us. We got, but pirate ships. (laughs) Right? No. Avengers Inc. number three from Marvel, written by Al Ewing, art by Leonard Kirk. We are following Wasp and Victor Shade, who, bear with me for a second here, is Whirlwind, taken over by the spirit of the Vision, but not the Vision, the human identity of the Vision, potentially. They are solving weird mysteries in the Marvel Universe. Here, they need to investigate the mystery of Scourge, a.k.a. the Executioner, who was somehow killed in Valhalla. How did that happen? They find out in this issue. This is great. I I love that we're getting essentially done in one mysteries every issue throughout the Marvel Universe. I would not have expected one that goes all the way to Valhalla, but I thought that was super fun. And we're getting the overarching mystery going through as well. This title is a blast. Um, I'm, again, really excited to read more of this. Yeah, cool adventures, uh, fun going to bother Odin and all that fun stuff. Yeah, uh, uh, fantastic art. Uh, yeah, this continues to be interesting. Yeah, if you're looking for a twisty mystery set in the Marvel Universe, definitely check this out. Universal Monsters twisty Dracula. Mystery. Twisty mystery. Universal Monsters Dracula, number two, from Image Comics, written by James Town IV, art by Martin Simmons. This is continuing a new story set in the world of Bram Stoker's Dracula, or more, more specifically, the movie Dracula. And, yep, it's a Dracula story, all right. Well, JT4, absolutely killing this. I mean... The real hero, though, is the art. I mean, each panel is like a uh, pastel type of painting. It's just so impressive. I I can't say enough artistically about what they're doing. There's this one image where it's just like bloody fangs, and that's the whole panel. And it's just so intense and fantastic in all the right ways. Uh, I can't recommend this artistically enough and it's uh gets pretty fucking scary man it got a little a little too much at times for me but man, really artistically i was just super impressed i agree with you on martin simmons being the real standout here this is nothing against james Todd the fourth but i think the nothing. story story-wise it plays it a little safe in terms of dracula it's funny it's almost the flip side of mortal terror which you talked about earlier in the stack which as we mentioned that was breaking the brain this is like yeah, this is Dracula. I get this. I know what's going on here. So I would love to see a little more in terms of twists and turns and things sure, that surprise it. me. I think we will. I mean, there's James is a smart writer. But mm-hmm. like you said, love looking at the pages. I could flip through this forever. Just his take on Renfield and Dracula in particular are stunning yep. in this book. Let's move on and talk about Wonderland, Child of Madness, number one from Zetoscope, art by Dave Francini, David Wall, and Raven Gregory, art by Reagan Gregory, art by Giada Belviso. You know, Zetoscope is not a publisher that we ever review, so I thought maybe it was worth to at least throw something in the stack and check it out, particularly as this is a number one issue. We're getting a bunch of weird stuff here as... A mother is dealing with the death, uh, by, with a miscarriage, by turning into a horrible swan monster. Meanwhile, an Alice-type character is raising her own mother in a Wonderland slash Lord of the Rings-style realm. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this issue. Uh, what did you think, Big? How, how did this strike you? 
I mean, it gets creepy fast, uh, but it's also a crazy intense story that keeps kind of twisting and turning, which is very enjoyable. Uh, loved all the action. Uh, loved the badass mom who is just like, hold on a second. I got to cut out this fucking eyeball. Uh, yeah, so... Um, I loved creatively how quickly it was going. It gets uh, creepy and gross at some points that are a little too much for me, but overall I had a good time. I think what you would expect from Xenoscope based on the covers, and this is something we talk about with Dynamite a lot as well, is like cheesecake inside. There are some cheesecake shots, which I was like, I don't know if we need those. And part of the reason that I don't think we need those is I really like the beginning of the story in particular of the mother who had the miscarriage and it almost went into this Medea type story, not the Tyler Perry character, okay, but the classic. Yeah, I know. I know you're going to ask that the classic Greek myth and play. And I thought that was really smart. I thought that was really interesting and emotional in the way that it was played out. It felt like this, almost creep show style horror story that was playing out there. When it went to the other stuff, the more like superhero horror stuff, which like you were saying, the Alice type character fighting back against the swamp monster. Um, I like the visuals there and I thought that was fun, but the thing that I was really into and I wish the issue almost was, was just digging into the psychology of this mom and what happens to her because that was fascinating and that was really well done. So I don't know. I like this a lot more than I thought I would, and I'm definitely interested to check out more Xenoscope things at this point to see if they have the same level of emotional uh, intensity, but we'll see. Let's move on and talk about Superman number eight from DC Comics, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Gleb Melnikov, Norm Rapmund, David Baldion, and Jamal Campbell. In this issue, we are finishing up the battle against the Chained a secret that Lex Luthor has kept for years. Meanwhile, Lex Luthor is dealing with the fact that his mother and daughter, Lena Luthor, have returned. So a lot of stuff going on in this issue as well. What did you think about this, Pete? Yeah, I mean, worth it for the art alone. I mean, some real iconic-looking panels here. Love the chain bad guy look to it. So cool. Story is great. Uh, Action and art. You know, saving Lex was a little dumb at the end, but whatever, you know. (laughs) Oh, you would have let him die? Yeah. Fuck that guy. I got to be honest. You're not a hero, Pete. I did really like tying Never the chain to Connor Kent and his origin. I thought that was really, really smart in this issue. I won't spoil exactly how it works out, but Joshua Williamson knows his DC continuity. Great yep. art throughout. I'm really, really loving this Superman book. Let's talk about The Incredible Hulk, number six, from Marvel, yeah. written by Fidel Kennedy Johnson, art by Nick Klein. We're getting a new arc here as Hulk and his young ward travel the back roads, classic Hulk style. Here they're encountering a ghost rider that we've never seen before and a very weird monster. You seem into this. So what did you think, Pete? Well, what's tough is I really love the cover so much, but it kind of spoils the reveal. So that was a little, you know, that happens in comics a lot. But man, such a unbelievable cover that I just think I, I'm like, I got to go find that and buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does spoil the shit out of the issue. But man, this kind of like G.I. Joe Ghost Rider that we get is awesome. Um, and I love the whole kind of setup of everything that's happening. 
uh, you know, Philip Kennedy Johnson. Once I see that name, I'm I'm already in. So this uh, this is badass. Really, a whole level of badass. Would you say Gr. Joe for Ghost Rider Joe? Oh, I see what you did there. Okay, yeah. This book is great. The visuals are horrific from Nick Klein and Philip yeah. Kennedy Johnson. Like we said, really dives into the psychology, folks. I also really like it when Bruce Banner is kind of gross looking, yeah. you know, like he just looks dirty and unkempt and everything. And Nick Clyde does that very well. So this is good. Good stuff. Buy a thread. Number two from Comixology, written by Scott Snyder and Jack Snyder, art by Valerio Favocia. This takes place in a world where the entire world has been taken over by this black goop that hides monsters can't touch it otherwise you get completely corrupted and destroyed and a couple of kids have found out that there is an island of course a mystical island that potentially can protect them and they're going to head off in that direction a lot of this issue is taken up with making that decision like we talked about with the first issue this hits a lot of tropes and a lot of stuff that we've seen before but it still feels fresh and exciting and hits them in a great way the art by Valero Favocia Feels like a Valeria, Valeria Favocia. I'm sorry. It's been a long show already, Pete. Yeah, I know. The feels like a great animated cartoon. I would love to watch this on TV sometime. Yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, I, I felt like this is doing a great job of gearing up for the big fight with the big bad. And I'm on board and then loving it. Uh, and I really can't wait for the next issue. Uh, I think this is a great team artistically and writing-wise, so I'm excited for what's to come. It's kind of slow building, but I'm on board. The Devil That Wears My Face, number two from Mad Cave Studios, art by David Popose, art by Alex Cormack. This is Face Off meets The Exorcist as a priest has been taken over by a demon who is legion and headed back to the Vatican. Meanwhile, the priest... Is in the body that he previously inhabited. Um, I love this issue. It was bloody and it was gross and it was horrifying as, I mean, kind of spoilers here, but the priest demon just goes ham on everybody in the Vatican. It's disgusting. And uh, I had a lot of fun reading this. Yeah. Peepos is doing a lot. And uh, this is, you know, the creepy ass preacher is a little too much for me, and uh, it's a hell of a scary title, The Devil That Wears My Face. Uh, I'm not saying my face. I'm, that's the mm-hmm. name no, of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm not saying that I'm a, de- a devil wearing a face. I'm oh, just my God, really, no, no. You, uh, never yeah. would, you would never be a devil wearing a face. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, man... Uh, <laughs> if by the way, if you ever meet me in person and you're like, hey, are you, you a devil wearing a face? He'll be like, absolutely not. Yeah, well, a good way to kind of do it is just walk up to someone and be like, your uh, face is loose, you know, fix that. And if they Mm -hmm. do, then you know they're a devil wearing a face. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, got a river (laughs) fast on that one. Uh, Yeah, creepy-ass priest, uh, I'm out. But man, this is evil and scary. But if you like that kind of shit, uh, this goes all ham on that. So enjoy. Yep. Big takeaway here, this book goes ham. Titans number five from DC Comics. We both said it, so it must be true. Titans number five from DC Comics, written by Tom Taylor, art by Nicola Scott. The Titans are taking a break from their ongoing mysteries and trying to save the rainforest in this issue. Um, This is, 
I, I always like this title. This is really well done. Nicola Scott's art, of course, is commensurate superhero art, and Tom Taylor knows his way around a comic book. It's just wild to me with everything that was going on. They're like, we need to be X-Men Red briefly, and or X-Men Green, and like save the rainforest is our mission this issue. I was like... Yo, Flash is going to die in like one day and there's fern things that are jumping out of people's mouths. You have more important things to do right now. Well, sometimes you got to think about the big picture. You know what I mean? And who cares about the Flash? Yeah, I feel like this uh, <laughs> This was great. I love the Swamp Thing uh, Firestorm or Fire kind of team up here and Starfire, sorry. Mm-hmm. Swamp Thing, Starfire, a team up. Uh, very cool, fun, classic kind of tight, uh, Titans art. Uh, I love how it's kind of uh, getting things ready for the next issue. I'm very excited. And also the fun line of like, Linda tried to kill me. Uh, mm-hmm. Awkward. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm really worried about that uh, thing that's not Starro, but is Starro. So, yeah. I would say the art in this book was super tight. Tins bananas. Which oh is wow! I see what you did there. Yes. So smooth. Thank you. It was very smooth. The Invincible Iron Man number twelve from Marvel, written by Jerry Dugan, art by Aguara, Emma Frost, and Iron Man are married, but unfortunately, Riri Williams does not know that, and things go horribly wrong in this issue for pretty much all of them. I know we've been saying this every issue. I cannot believe how much I've been liking the Tony Stark, Emma Frost relationship. They are so good together. The stuff that goes on this issue with Riri and her weird stuff with her Mandarin rings that I still don't quite understand uh, why that is happening uh, is great. The danger from the giant Orcus Iron Man Sentinel is great as well. Love reading this book. Yeah, this is awesome. This is so much fun. Love the Riri Emma Frost fight. Uh, love the uh, Hellfire Brass Knuckles. Just such a cool, uh, fun touch there. Yeah, I just uh, uh, I, I think this is a blast, and the Dukes is having a blast, and you uh, jumps off the page. Also, I love the use of Wilson Fisk in this issue and oh, this yeah. crossover in general. Yeah. The stuff that he does, were like spoiler here, but basically because Emma and Riri end up in this psychic battle, a sentinel detects her in order to distract attention. There's a two panel thing that Iguara does where Wilson Fix just takes this, his staff and is like, looks at it and then smashes himself in the face and is like, help mystique attacks me. (laughs) And, Very funny the way that it's played out, but also the fact that, as Iron Man points out, Wilson Fix is like using it to his advantage at the same time. Just great use of him being an ally, but playing his own agenda at the same time. There's a lot of complicated stuff going on in this book, and it's very smart. Let's move to a uncomplicated book. Giant Robot Hellboy number two from Dark Horse Comics, written by Mike Mignola, art by Duncan Fergredo. This is based on a viral drawing by Mike Mignola, where Hellboy was a giant robot. The plot of this book is Hellboy is a giant robot, and he fights a bunch of monsters, and that's pretty much it. Um, though, there's definitely a twist by the end here that I thought was really interesting. Pete, you like giant monsters and you like Hellboy. How'd you feel about this? Yeah, yeah, this was awesome. This was right in my wheelhouse of fun. This is absolutely fan-fucking-tastic. I mean, giant boss battle. Uh, 
and all the best ways. An intense side mission happening at the same time. It's like double the fun. Uh, amazing art. Love this issue. This is just an absolute blast. And if you don't love the title, you won't like this book. <laughs> it's totally true. Wonder Woman number three from DC Comics, written by Tom King, art by Daniel Semperi and Bellin Ortega. In the front story, Wonder Woman is going directly for Sergeant Steel. She knows that he has some information on the Amazon that supposedly killed a bunch of people in a bar. And in the backup story, we are following Trinity, who is Wonder Woman's daughter, as she is babysat by the Super Sons by John Kent and Damian Wayne. The first story I thought was stunning in terms of the art. Daniel Samperi's oh. art is incredible. Come out. There, I mean, also in terms of the pacing that Tom King gives this issue as Wonder Woman just goes up in an elevator, comes through, goes to Sergeant Steele's office. Big spoiler here. Reveals her invisible jet, which is a paddle that, like, I sat and looked at. Oh, my God, dude. That was such a badass. Like, I wrote down, like, the line where she was like, yeah, you have an army? I have an invisible jet. And just, like, just, oh, oh, just so Amazing. Cool. Absolutely. And I felt that from a comic. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's it just, oh. It's great. There's also a big revelation at the end that I won't necessarily spoil that really changes things for both stories. Um, Also, the whole framing point here is that the Sovereign, who is the villain of this new series, the Secret King of America, has something called the Lasso of Lies. And you don't like this. No. You don't like lies? No, I don't like this, like... What goes down at the end? It's just kind of shitty where it's like this. It's pretty intense, but I think not. I think what Tom King is clearly trying to do here is in terms of the way people in power manipulate the media without spoiling anything that particularly happens in the issue. I will say there is a trigger warning here in terms of suicidal ideation and other things. So if you don't like that, please be aware when you're reading the comic book. But it's a pretty clear thing that he's doing. I Here's what I would say about this, about this plot line, is I'm still not sold on the Sovereign versus Wonder Woman. If this was a Captain America book, I'd be like, got it. I know what you're doing here. I'm 100% on board. I don't know if Wonder Woman exactly works the same way. Like, it feels a little forced in terms of the King of America being upset about immigrants, but... I get what they're going for, and I think it's emotionally powerful at the same time. That all said, the backup story is great. I love it. I yeah, read so a whole adorable. series of it. The yes. Super Sons babysitting for baby yeah. uh, Wonder so, Woman's daughter. So much so fun. Adorable. I laughed yeah. out loud multiple times. I had such a great time. Yeah, but the the villain got complicated and horrible fast and in a way that just doesn't feel or look right. And I understand like it's a villain. So yeah, but I don't know, man. Hey, all right. Sorry. Wolverine number 39. Wow. You're really moving it along. Wolverine number 39 from Marvel written by Benjamin Percy art by Juan Jose Rip. Wolverine is going on a world tour this time and takes him to Wakanda. And he is, Well, that just fuzzed out. He is teaming up with black Panther. Of course, black Panther, is an interesting place in continuity where he's secret. They think he's a different Black Panther. They don't think he's T'Challa. And they are teaming up. Take down Orcus, who has come to Wakanda. What'd you think, Pete? 
Uh, I, I thought this was a blast, a cool Black Panther teaming up with Wolverine. Um, uh, there was this moment, though, where Black Panther was like, oh, Wolverine, what's wrong? You look like you've seen a ghost. And I was like, oh, Chadwick Boseman, R.I.P. Oh. Uh, but yeah. then um, great-ish. I loved, uh, like, overall, the kind of back and forth was really crazy. Like, Wolverine said some sh- shit about, uh, you know, Storm to Black Panther. And Black Panther was like, yo, watch your tongue, mm-hmm. Wolverine. Like... No, I loved, fun. I loved the way that Juan Jose Rip drew his expression after that, where Wolverine like had the shit eating grin, where he's like, "Oh, I got you." I got no, you, dude, that was Panther. fucked up, Wolverine. That was fucked up, bro. It was. Don't but be talking I loved about the way that. that played out. That was that cool, man. I thought, I thought he's Wolverine. Do you have any experience with like friends really like shit talking each other? Is that a thing that ever happens to you? No, no. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, good issue, great good series. Point. Black Hammer, The End, number four, from Dark Horse Comics, written by Jeff Lemire, art by Malachi Ward. While in the, I don't know, I, I don't even call it real world, but one world, there is an assembled team who is fighting against anti-God. It's basically Crisis on Infinite Earths, but in the Black Hammer universe. Meanwhile, the folks that are in the non-Black Hammer superhero universe, but in just a regular, normal, old universe, are dealing with the fallout of the revelation that Black Hammer basically abdicated her duty. Every issue of this is good. Every issue of this is well done. This is definitely a middle issue here, uh, but I'm really excited and nervous to see where it goes, particularly based on the last page. Yeah, I'm uh, very excited. I'm really pulling for this to land the ship. I'm so emotionally invested. I feel like they did such an amazing job. I just want the ending to be good so I can just praise this whole series. Um, But yeah, uh, an amazing team on this. Uh, Love what's happening this issue. Can't wait for more. Last but not least, Moon Knight, City of the Dead, number five for Marvel, written by David Popose. Again, art by Marcelo Ferreira. This is the last issue of this title, which is pitting not just uh, Moon Knight, but also, I forgot the title character, but Scarlet Scarab against a bunch of supernatural enemies. Pete, you seem super into this one, so take it away. Yeah, the Moon Knight uh, teams up with more Moon Knights. Oh my God, what a fun twist. It is cool to see other versions of the Moon Knight all together on the same page. Uh, As a fan of Moon Knight, I was kind of like, oh, this is cool. This is... You don't see this all the time. So it was kind of a nice nerdy moment for me. Um, yeah, uh, excited for more. This is, uh, you know, the art and the writing. This is all fun. Yeah, I think that was my big watchword for the series is fun, where the other main Moon Knight series is pretty serious and yeah. there's like dark, twisty stuff going on. There's some emotional stuff that happens in this issue for sure, but at the same time, this is a fun series. It's wild. It's over the top. The supernatural yeah. creatures are great. I had a blast reading this, uh, every issue. And yeah, I hope uh, David gets to do more. 
And for all of you out there, if you'd like to support the show and all the shows we do, patreon.com slash Patreon. I hope we do. I hope we do. Patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Facebook and YouTube. Not us, them. Facebook and YouTube, uh, please come out. We'd love to chat with you about comic books, Apple, Spotify, Android, or the app of your choice to subscribe, listen, and follow the show at Comic Book Live on Twitter slash X, Comic Book Club Live on TikTok and Instagram, Comic Book Club Live.com. For this podcast and many more. Until next time, we'll see you at the Comic Book Club. Yeah.